0: like for you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we will look this morning at verses 1 through 11. We are taking a break from our series called Ordinary and we will... Look at Ecclesiastes this morning, and I will be out the next uh, three Lord's Days, but we thank God for our elders and for Sam for filling in to come and preach while I am in Nigeria. Um, So each of them has prepared a feast for you while I'm gone, and I trust the Lord will bless you through their Efforts. But this morning we are in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses one through eleven. The title of our sermon is "Wired for Pleasure," and our keywords for worshipers in training are joy, toil, and self. In the 1600s, there was a uh, French mathematician who most of you have probably heard his name. Uh, his name is Blaise Pascal. He was a mathematician, but he was also a physicist, an inventor. A lot of people don't know he was also a theologian. He was a child prodigy. And Pascal had a lot of wonderful things to say, but he, he said one of, uh, something that has always rung true to me. He writes this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and other, others avoiding it. It is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. I agree with Blaise Pascal. Every motive, every action of all of mankind has the same starting point. Personal happiness, joy, satisfaction. And we see it in the things that we do in this life. Our jobs, our recreation, our vacations, our hobbies. All of these at times become for us a means to an end instead of what it is for itself. We all struggle to find pleasure in what we are called to find pleasure in, and so we seek it in everything that we do, even, as Pascal points out, the man who hangs himself. He could not find pleasure in this life, and so perhaps fulfillment is found in death instead. Now, you and I were wired by God, for pleasure. It is our makeup. It is why all of us, without exception, seek after it. It's not a foreign concept in the Bible. In fact, this idea of seeking joy and finding joy and being joyful are all throughout the scriptures. The Bible is full of commands. Rejoice, delight, be joyful. But we very quickly see a problem with this in all of our own lives, if we're honest. This is the very thing we're wired for. This is the very thing we we spend all of our pursuits going after. But very seldom, if ever, do we sense that we've ever actually arrived at it. So, our striving becomes bigger and better and more exotic and more luxurious and more risque. It's bigger events and bigger experiences, better this and better that. We get to one thing and thought it was going to bring a great deal of joy, and we realize it failed us, and so we go on to find the next bigger thing. This is what the advertising agency is based upon completely. You know that homemade pizza that you have going on there tonight is good. But why eat that when you could save an hour and make our amazing frozen processed pizza in 20 minutes in the oven with no mess? They make frozen pizza sound good. And we see it in car ads, in real estate ads, in clothing ads, in electronic ads, and for sports equipment. equipment. Now, even your vacations that you take, those are lame. Whatever you do, if it's not what we're telling you you should do, It's lame. It's pointless. There's a whole industry now of vacation destinations that are called hedonism. You can only imagine what goes on in places like that. So everything around us seems to be geared toward manufacturing the very thing we are constantly longing for. It's manufacturing joy. It's manufacturing pleasure. It's manufacturing any kind of purpose and meaning. And yet all of it falls short of bringing us any kind of true, lasting pleasure. The philosophy of our day very much mirrors that of 5th century uh, BC, Greek philosopher of Cyreniacs and the Epicureans. To them, religion was a fear of future punishment of sin, and that's a burden that runs, that, that, ru- that ruins the enjoy- enjoyment of this present life. So instead, they advocated and, and basked in anything and everything that brought pleasure to the senses with no concern for the consequences. If you do it and you like it, then do it all the way. The consequences don't matter. Well, you realize very quickly what comes of that. Uh, Gordon Clark wrote a history of philosophy, and he remarked that their carelessness about consequences produced, well, really bad consequences. They were diametrically opposed to the very thing they were seeking. The consequences of all of their limitless pleasure-seeking brought a great lack of pleasure, He wrote, their motto should be, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall have gout, cirrhosis of the liver, and delirium tremens. But you need to only open one magazine and pay attention to billboards on one road trip, or... Spend a three-minute series of commercials to draw the conclusion that everything around us is built on this philosophy. The results have not changed. You have a life to live, and let us tell you, it is lame. You need something greater. You need to find your joy and your pleasure elsewhere, and we have just the thing for you. In fact, most of us can attest to the ruin in our own lives and the failed pursuits of pleasure in gratifying the flesh. I think if we're honest, we will all admit that we would be sickened and ashamed if all the others in this room right now truly knew the depths of the love in our hearts for things that leave us far short of true joy. Every one of us. Imagine that ad campaign. Buy our product. It will leave you empty and unfulfilled. In the end, you will want more of something else because it will never last. But it's really cool. It doesn't sell much, but it's true. But you get the point. This is the air that we breathe. It's important, then, that we pay attention to the warnings of Scripture, the examples of Scripture, like the example of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, he introduces his lifestyle, and he talks about living life under the sun. And many of you remember this as we went through Ecclesiastes several years ago he indulged, Solomon indulged in everything that he could find. And in the end, he said all of it ultimately was meaningless. And he sets out to prove this by explaining all of the things that he did in his life, all of the experimentation he did, all of the things he sought to gather up and to immerse himself in. So Solomon is doing an experiment for us. He was doing it for himself, but the the Lord has inspired it to be written down that we should pay attention to it and learn from it. And his experiment went far beyond anything any of us could be capable of, if no other reason than for lack of resources. Solomon used his wealth, he used his power, he used his influence. It's anything beyond what you and I could ever imagine. Solomon was the wealthiest and wisest man to have ever lived. And all of this runs through this idea that he thinks that maybe by pursuing certain things in certain ways, he could fill this longing, this emptiness that he feels. Surely it's out there Somewhere. And so at the end of chapter 1, he looks at his first experiment, which was seeking pleasure through great wisdom and knowledge. So he set out to, all, to know all that could be known, the finest of fines, the lowest of lows, and he concludes in verse 18 of chapter 1, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In other words... I didn't find what I was looking for, even though I found a tremendous amount of knowledge and wisdom. That was not the key to unlock life's meaning. So what does he do? He searches elsewhere. So beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was Vanity. Now Solomon is about to explain what he did as he sought to find meaning and lasting fulfillment in having a good time. It wasn't in studying and learning and gaining wisdom. Now maybe it is in having a good time. So it took on very much the spirit of our day. If it feels good, do it. Do whatever makes you happy. That's what's most important, right? As long as you're happy. The problem is happiness wasn't what he found. He says this also was vanity. Look at verses 2 and 3. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So Solomon takes all of his resources, all of his time, all of his energy, all of his creativity, all of his knowledge to consume as much pleasure as is humanly possible on this earth. So he begins to throw these epic parties. He has the best entertainment, the best food the best wine thousands of people and these aren't on his birthday these aren't on holidays these are every single day every day first kings chapter 4 gives us a glimpse of what it required for him to throw these parties in one day for one party 220 liters of flour, 440 liters of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 free-range cattle, 100 sheep, and it says not to mention the deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. One day, one party. So we're talking about enough food for between twenty-five to 50,000 people every day of the week. That kind of blows up that little bash you had that one time when your parents went out of town, doesn't it? Those frat parties you went to in college. The first thing he mentions in verse 2 is laughter. Maybe pleasures found in laughter. Mark Twain thought this against the assault of laughter nothing can stand the world has taken this perspective most certainly laughter has so often been sought as the opiate of the soul but most often it ends up not as a strong defense but it's hollow it's empty It is trite. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the pleasure of laughter can also be the gratification of cruelty, even an expression of hatred or jealousy. But most of the time, the truth is that laughter is simply empty. Watch even a clean comedy. Compare the after effect with that of watching a tragedy. Comedy is light. Tragedy is weighty. Comedy is superficial, but a good tragedy is able to produce a catharsis of the emotions like a medicine that cleanses pollutants out of the system and makes it function properly again. Humor under the sun can only keep its sense of humor through a blind foolishness. G.K. Chesterton observed that while it most certainly took place, there is not one recorded instance when Jesus was found laughing. I believe he did laugh. You look at the crew he hung out with. He spent a lot of time with Peter. He had no no choice but to laugh. But in Jesus, more than lightheartedness and laughter, we see pity and compassion and love and weeping and pain. And yet, we find a man who is very satisfied. None of this is to say laughter is wrong or sinful. But is it a means of any kind of lasting satisfaction? No. Solomon says it is mad. It is madness. It is no prescription for lasting joy. And sadly, All around us, we see a lack of any real sense of weightiness, of any sense of seriousness about this life, and more significantly, any seriousness about the life to come. But lasting joy is not measured in decibels of laughter. The relentless pursuit of merriment that seeks to solve the problem of boredom and meaninglessness only serves to actually do the opposite. A constant striving after laughter seems to have led to a constant state of depression. Life must have more meaning than what is portrayed in a comedy routine. Solomon did not find his lasting joy in laughter. So what does he turn to? Verse three, he tells us he turns to wine. Now, Psalm 104, 15 makes clear that wine is a gift from God. It is to be enjoyed, to make the heart of man glad. It is for our enjoyment. It is something we are gifted to enjoy. But like so many other things God has given us to enjoy, man has frequently sought to fill his longings for joy in the gift instead of the giver. And so it becomes something that is abused. Solomon sought his solace in wine. He wanted stimulation from something that we know is actually a depressant. And notice, I think our tendency would be to think, well, no wonder he's writing all these things. He's saying he was drunk all the time. But he wants to make very clear in his writing that he wasn't. He was, he said, I was still guided with wisdom. In layman's terms, he's saying, I'm not drinking too much. I can still think clearly. In other words, he didn't lose his mind to alcohol, but he absolutely, very clearly indulged beyond his fair share. Now, we need to understand the problem as Ecclesiastes presents it. If a thoughtful man were to look around and see the world as it is, the only logical conclusion that anyone can draw is the same one that Bob Dylan so poignantly gave to us everybody must get stoned. And so in the end, Solomon realizes it didn't work to fulfill his longings to be out of his mind. But if life is as meaningless under the sun as he has presented it, it was an understandable thing to try, right? Remember First Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul picks up on this line of reasoning. He says, if Christ did not raise from the dead, we have no hope. So the most sensible thing to do is to eat and drink and to have a good time and do all that we can do because we're just meaningless makeups of microorganisms and it doesn't last long so enjoy it while it's here because tomorrow it's all going to be gone and we're all just going to turn to dust and it doesn't really matter. And so if all of life has to do with nothing more than what's under the sun, moderation and sobriety mean very little. They probably don't make sense at all. So Solomon shows us that wine as a means to find lasting joy is as empty as the drunkard's bottle. It doesn't work. Many have sought to find some kind of meaning for life through the ingestion of various substances. Whether this better living through chemistry approach comes through liquid, smoke, needles, a straw, the result is always a vacuum. A fool will find various ways to dig his way down, but when he gets there, he is always at the very bottom of a hole. Good food, good coffee, good cigars, good wine are all headed to the same place, which is the sewage treatment plant. And as a substitute for transcendent meaning in this life, food performs just as poorly as wine, and yet in every culture we see a flailing after meaning and snobbery with regard to the finest of fine things. And so Solomon says, I've thrown these enormous parties, I've laughed my head off, I've drank enough wine to fill an ocean, I am still lacking in meaningful pleasure. I've not found it yet. So, what's next? Verses 4 through 6. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which the water to water the forest of growing trees. So, Solomon puts the party scene behind him. That didn't do it for me. So, I'm going to be a green thumb, a horticulturist. I want to do some building projects. Maybe I'll be some kind of engineer. Well, to say he did some building projects and yard work is a bit of an understatement. It took 14 years to build Solomon's house. But notice in verse 4, he wrote houses, plural. Also, vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees, pools... Hey Solomon, what are you going to do with that thousand acres over there? Um, How about a 12,000 square foot home, 10 swimming pools, a 750 acre garden, some grassy areas to walk around in, and a small vineyard right there in the center? Okay, what about that thousand acres over there? A rainforest. Let's plant a rainforest. It's bigger and better, and he's filling up the space as much as he can. It's grand opulence. It's incredible aesthetic of beauty, building projects like you wouldn't believe. So he's building all these things that he and everyone else can enjoy. They can walk around. They can reflect over the reflection pool. They can contemplate chess moves and geometry problems. Because binge drinking and comedy at massive parties wasn't cutting it. So maybe a little highbrow culture will. Some of these things Solomon built are still in existence today. The pools of Solomon, for example, and several buildings and gardens he's given credit for are still around. But it seems that these pursuits were a bit more refined and yet still the result was the same, empty. It's all built. It's all set up. Well, now how shall it be enjoyed? Look at verse 7. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so now he enters into a life of absolute and total ease where he has no responsibilities, completely lazy, literally doing nothing for himself. I had slaves. I got slaves for my slaves. I woke up and what I wanted, I asked for. And I ate what I wanted. And someone else cooked it for me and fed it to me. They put my clothes on me. They cleaned my house. They bathed my body. So Solomon sort of sat back and just watched it all happen around him. He literally did nothing. Maybe this is where I can find pleasure. He also had a cattle ranch and a horse ranch with more animals than anyone before him had ever owned. So he's pointing out the reality that he had everything you could possibly imagine and he took full advantage of his wealth and his power and his popularity. Oh, and by the way, I stored up gold and silver and all the treasures of the land. And when I heard music I liked, I didn't download it on iTunes or pull it up on Spotify. I bought the band. And they came and they lived at my house and they played all the music for me that I wanted to hear. And so there was, as is so often the case for us, no silence in Solomon's life now. He has people running everywhere doing everything for him. He has constant music from the greatest musicians of his day. He eliminates the idea of a moment's peace because maybe if I just keep my mind stimulated and noise and activity and everyone around me doing everything, maybe then I'll find pleasure. Maybe then I'll find lasting joy. We do that through our stereos and our earbuds, but we get the same results because meaning and purpose and joy are not acoustical matters. Well, he tells us also that he had, in verse 8, he says, I had concubines, the delights of the sons of men. In other words, I had beautiful women all around. He sure did, 300 to be exact. And on top of that, he had 700 wives, Solomon was a man with absolute uninhibited sexual experiences. One woman didn't satisfy, so he got another. Guess what happens? Same thing. So he got more and more and more and more until he has a thousand women running around, all for his sexual fulfillment. And he says in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. I love that verse. He's basically saying, I became a pretty popular guy. Well, do you think? Every night he has the best parties in the world with the greatest wine and beautiful women walking around. Yeah, probably someone is going to want to hang out with him. But notice he says, My wisdom remained with me. In all that he did, Solomon knew what he was doing. Unlike us, he realized... All along, his goal and his focus was to find meaning and lasting pleasure. But he keeps coming to the same end. I did all of these things. I was popular. People liked me. I had all that you could want. But it was found lacking. In verse 10, And whatever my eyes desire, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward. My reward for all my toil. Solomon sought out any and every pleasure and he left nothing undone. If it felt good or if it looked good, Solomon was all over it. And notice he doesn't write, I hated it. It was such a drag. No, he writes, my heart found pleasure in my toil. In other words, it was really good when it lasted. That's why it's so enticing. Because when you're in the middle of it, when you are taking it all in, it satisfies your desires of your flesh. But it was only good while it lasted. The problem is, it doesn't last. Nothing good came of it. His only reward was the momentary pleasure of his toil. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, those who seek earthly pleasure will never find pleasure to keep. In the end, it's all a bunch of nothing. When the band stopped, when the party ended, When everyone sobered up and stopped hiding behind a laugh, Solomon saw there was no profit to all that he pursued. To the worldly man, Solomon had everything. He had it all, anything you could want, but in the end, he saw that all of it was nothing. Most of you are probably familiar with the author Ernest Hemingway. He was one of the most hedonistic men of our time. He drank constantly. He got married four times. He gambled much of his fortune away. And mainly, he just wasted a lot of time sitting at the bar. And he wrote the book, The Old Man in the Sea. You've probably read it. He writes about a fisherman hauling in a huge fish. And after a long, painful 75-page struggle, and let me tell you, it is a painful 75-page struggle. In the end, he gets to the shore only to find that this fish he snagged was devoured by all the sharks. It's the story of his own life. Hemingway ended his life with a shot in the head in 1961. He went after all he could find. He was trying to reel in all the pleasures of this life through hedonism, and in the end, it was completely devoured. He ended it himself because that's all he had left in his mind where he could find pleasure in death. So why do men do these things? Why did Solomon do all that he did? Because all of us, without exception, are wired for pleasure. It's not a bad thing, but the problem is, as C.S. Lewis wrote, we're far too easily pleased with the things of this world. So the problem isn't seeking pleasure. The promise is that we're not seeking pleasure hard enough because we're looking in all of the wrong places. Solomon got to the end of all he could pursue that he was seeking to find pleasure in, he toiled with all that he could do and in the end he said it's vanity and yet here's the problem, where do I turn now? Where do I go now? And I know some of you here have sought pleasure your whole life and you've looked here and you've looked there. Maybe it's in new possessions. Maybe it's in greater education. Maybe it's in a better job. Maybe it's in more money. Maybe it's a better spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it is, but then you get there and you experience it and you toil in it and you say, "No, nope. it wasn't there. I'm still lonely, I'm still depressed." I still feel empty and broken inside. So we spend our lives chasing our tails after things we assume will make us happy forever, only eventually to give out and die on the ever-turning treadmill of life. Well, I want to tell you that that pleasure-seeking is what God himself has put into the hearts of man. He's designed us to seek after pleasure. But here's what that means. That means that there is only one place where that pleasure, where that joy, where that satisfaction can be found. God has given us a lot of great things to enjoy in this life, but if we're seeking to find our lasting joy in those things... Instead of seeking to find our joy in God, we will come up woefully short. God has a perfect standard that he's revealed in his law. And by giving us his law, he's revealed to us his nature and his character, showing us how he has created us to function so that we would experience true joy and peace. Now, the standard that God has set is absolute perfection of the heart and action in all that he commands. So you know very quickly there's a problem because not one man, woman, or child alive can achieve God's standard of perfection. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, every person has been born into a state of sin and misery and we're looking around for some kind of peace, some kind of joy. And all of this applies to everyone who's ever been born except for one man who is Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect, sinless life fulfilling the fullness of God's righteous law in fulfillment of a covenant that he made with the Father to bring about the completion of centuries' worth of prophecy He was hated, he was mocked, he was ridiculed by the people of his day, and he was crucified on a cross of wood. And Hebrews tells us he did it all for the joy that was set before him. A perfect, spotless, righteous, blameless man, who is God, was nailed to a cross and left to die. And it wasn't just the the physical pain, as horrendous as it was. The father poured his wrath out upon his son because his people deserved it. And yet Jesus took their place. And because he was redeeming a people for himself, he was able to say it was all joy. You see, every sin that's ever been committed in this world must be paid for. Not one sin will go unpunished. Every sin will be punished. And it's going to happen in one of two ways. Either you will pay for your sins for the rest of eternity, condemned, cast away from God in everlasting torment. Or Christ has paid the penalty for your sins upon the cross and has died in your place. And so what has happened is what we call the great exchange. My sins were given to Christ, and his, his taking on the wrath of the Father has been credited to me, and I get a right standing before the Father because of Christ's righteousness. So my sins were traded on the cross for his righteousness credited to my account. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the pivotal, pivotal moment in all of human history. God making a way that we would have peace with him. And the Bible tells us peace with God came by way of the cross and the blood that was shed on the cross peace with God came only through the slaughter of the perfect spotless lamb in our place and it's in the blood of Christ that we find true lasting joy and satisfaction if you're a Christian you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds if you aren't a Christian, you are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But God has made a way in Jesus Christ. He has made a way of reconciliation through the destruction of the body of the flesh by Jesus' death that we might receive his righteous standing. And we know we have that righteous standing, not because we say we do, not because we change a few habits and start coming to church but because we've repented of a life of sin. We've turned from our life of sin. We've placed our trust and hope and faith and assurance in Jesus Christ alone, and we found true and lasting joy and peace and pleasure not in the things of this world. We stop pursuing those things in this world, and we turn all of our hearts and all of our affections and all of our longings to Jesus alone will be filled with a desire to live for Christ instead of the world. And if indeed you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, you'll be found righteous before God. He will look at you, he will see the work that Christ has accomplished by his blood on your behalf, and he will say, not guilty. Friends, I know there may be some of you here this morning who have a lot of questions. Maybe you've spent your whole life seeking pleasure and you realize you keep coming up short and I'm thankful you're here. Some of you may think you've heard this a thousand times and you're ready to go have lunch. So just hear me out and we'll be done. God tells us he does not wink at sin. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders as if it were no big deal. Your sin, in the eyes of God, is not a misdemeanor. It is a felony to the highest degree. It's a capital offense. It's worthy of death, instant death. So here's the question for you. How are you responding to the death penalty in your life? You're condemned already. You're on death row. How are you responding to it? How will you get through the grave Now some of you hear what I'm saying and you roll your eyes and you harden your heart and I assure you God does not take that lightly. I'm a good person. I'm here at church. I dropped a few dollars in the plate. You people have this holier than thou talk. You preacher with your hellfire and damnation. I don't need this. If that's you, I want to warn you. I fear for you. You are recklessly and carelessly waltzing through life seeking pleasure where it cannot be found You're denying the God you know exists, and you're seeking to live on your own terms. You're on very dangerous ground, and I'm pleading with you. Now, some of you sit here with a conscience that has been pierced. You're guilty of your sin. You know you're guilty of your sin. You hear me, and the more I talk about it, the further you feel yourself sink into it. The more and more you feel the weight of God's word and the weight of your sin. You're thinking of all the ways you've sinned against God and all the things that you've sought pleasure in. All the ways you've sought to find pleasure in things that you know are displeasing to God that have gone against your conscience because they, they, they presented themselves to be something far greater than they really were. And week after week after week, you know you're guilty And you know what? You're right. You are guilty, and I hope that burdens you beyond belief because the scriptures say that your sins will not go unpunished, and this is dreadful, and this is fearful. This is horrible. The wrath of God is stored up against you, and it's ready to be poured out upon you. And I hope this causes you to tremble because there's a blessed hope for you. Listen to this, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God says this, that God is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Well, that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? I hope you're thinking, what must I do to be saved? You can take your dirty, filthy, sin-filled hands and place them on the woolen coat of the bloody lamb who was slain to take away and bear the sins of the world. And all the acts of defiance in your heart and your lips and your hands, all that you've done and all that you've sought pleasure in and found it lacking, take those filthy hands and wipe them clean in the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's paid the penalty of our guilt? In Jesus Christ, every drop of sin comes off of you. And when you pull away, that etern- eternal avalanche of God's wrath against you that you deserve on, du- on Judgment Day shifts over to the cross of Christ, and you realize it's already been paid. All of the wrath of God fell down upon the Son of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the hatred of God for your sin and mine is poured out in full force on Jesus so that we would not have to receive the same ourselves. Have you placed your hands upon the Lamb? If so, what is left for you on Judgment Day? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. If you are apart from Christ, acknowledge your sin, recognize your sin, admit your sin before God, turn from your sin, place your faith and your trust and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will find an everlasting fount of true unending joy. I pray that for today, today is the day of salvation, that you will be struck with a fear of God, a a recognition of your sin before God and trembling in that fear that you would be caused by God to be born again and then you will find the joy that you're wired to have and the peace you've so so diligently sought after in so many ways realizing it's been there in Jesus all along. Rest, peace, and joy, these are all found in Jesus Christ. Well, there may be a few of you who thought you've maybe wasted your time coming this morning. You've repented of your sins, you're trusting in Jesus, and it's all just the same thing you've heard before. And listen, if that's you, I am worried about your heart If we're not absolutely amazed that our world be rocked again and again and again by the good news of the gospel, we're not in a good place. If your communion with God has grown so cold that the gospel of God's grace doesn't overwhelm your heart and leave you amazed... I'm really concerned for the state of your soul. You have a capacity for true joy, but it is suppressed in your lack of obedience and communion with God. And I pray that at least you hear me now, and as difficult as it may seem to you right now, Because you're in a spiritual desert in your life, I pray that you will go home and get on your knees and beg the Lord to open your heart and your eyes afresh to be absolutely blown away by the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished. You need to be amazed by God. We must be amazed by Jesus Christ. And we must know that any joy that we have in our lives is as a result of him. Now, there may be those of you who aren't doubting your salvation, but you're ashamed of your lack of growth. Some of you feel beat up and battered and down on yourselves because you feel like you're not making any progress in your life with Christ, and you feel a lack of contentment and joy in your life. You think, I'm ashamed of myself. I tremble at the thought of what would happen if God held me guilty of my sin. I could not stand. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why it's important for us to hear and know and understand and daily be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you know what? Even as Christians, we will sin. But Jesus doesn't love you less because of it. He didn't die for you any less because of it. He's growing you, He's shaping you, He's making you more holy. But he loves you and he cares for you and he wants to see you progress in those things. So stop looking for pleasure and joy apart from Christ. Reorient your mind and your heart on Christ alone. Now, the testimony of every Christian is that there is no way we could be saved apart from the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because. The sin of our hearts is so deep and so pervasive that we are constantly prone to rebel against God, to seek pleasure apart from God. We can all be honest about that, right? The real truth about us is that we are so guilty that even the Son of God had to be crucified to pay for our sins. So that if that's true, why would we ever pretend to be anything more than sinners saved by the grace of God? To act like we have it all together. It's such a lie. It means nothing. Who cares if you have it all together? We know you don't live the life of a Christian, one who admits freely. I don't have it together at all. I'm broken, I've sinned in my life, I'm seeking joy in things that don't satisfy. I want to give them up. I want to find my hope and my peace and my joy in Christ alone. Don't deny the grace of God and the necessity for it in your life. Don't minimize the fact that God has made peace with you through the blood of a cross by denying the fact that you are who you are. Be honest. We need Jesus and that's nothing to be ashamed of. Every single man, woman, and child in this world and in this room needs Jesus Christ. And something wonderful happens when we're willing to confess the real truth about who we are and what is going on in our lives. What happens is that we're able to see the real truth about Jesus, the real truth about what he has done for our salvation. We understand that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and there is no way to get to the Father but through him. So let's stop chasing after joy in all the wrong places. Everything under the sun has been tried, and everything under the sun has been found wanting, because true and lasting joy is in Christ Jesus alone. Let's rest in Christ. Let's look to Christ and live. Let's pray. Father, your word at times comes to us like a wrecking ball. It comes to us at times in ways that destroys so much of the life that we've sought to live. And sometimes we don't understand what's going on or why it's going on. But we are assured in your word that so much of what goes on in our lives is a result of our own brokenness. Father, would you help all of us to be honest this morning that we have sought pleasure, we have sought joy in the way of Solomon, in things of this world that do not last, that are perishing quickly. Remind us of all of those things that we've put so much hope in that in the end we've found lacking. Lacking. Lord, we're thankful for the gifts that you give in this world, all of the things you provided for us to enjoy. But Lord, we recognize that we enjoy them and seek pleasure in them because we're looking to the gift instead of the giver. Would you raise our hearts to see Christ? I pray, God, for those who are in here who are not in Christ that you would show them the folly of sin, the folly of pleasure-seeking in the world, that they would repent and trust in Christ alone. Awaken dead sinners to new life in Jesus for your glory, for your namesake, and for their good. Give them passage through the grave that they might live in eternal, everlasting, unhindered, perfect joy. Give them life with Christ. We ask of you, pleading with you, knowing that in the end it brings you glory and it brings joy to the hearts of man. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.